The Trumpet Daily Program begins right now. Today's world news, what it means, where it's taking us. I bring you the one and only possible message of world peace. This is a message of hope, tremendous hope. And he said unto me, you must prophesy again. The Trumpet Daily Program begins right now. And when you stop and think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we, select group of human beings, because of whatever touched us at some point in our lives, are able to sit in a room and come together and uh, actually talk about saving the planet. I mean, it's so almost extraterrestrial to think about, quote, saving the planet. And if you said that to most people, most people, they think you're just a crazy, tree-hugging, lefty, liberal, you know, do-gooder, whatever, and, and there's no relationship. But really, that's where we are. If you look at all the new electricity generation installed worldwide, 90% of it was renewable. It's now the cheapest source of electricity in almost the entire uh, planet. I don't think everybody realizes that we all have to do this. We all have to do number well, step number one. We have to commit to being net zero. We have to reduce our emissions. We have no choice. We How just can you advocate for these zero carbon value chains if you still eat meat? And so I stopped eating meat. But if a billion people stop eating meat, I tell you, it has a big impact. So we need to act together to close the emissions gap. And that means to phase out progressively coal and supercharge the renewable revolution, to end the addiction to fossil fuels, and to stop our self-defeating war on nature. The term fake news and then disinformation, it was popularized six years ago at this point. Where are we today versus then? Terms like fake news and enemies of the people have been popularized cyclically in society mm. and in, in some of the most, you know, um, you know, repressive and dangerous moments, you know, Nazi Germany, Stalinist Russia, right? Um, this question of disinformation. I think it maps basically to every other major challenge that we are grappling with as a society, and particularly the most existential among them. They're not exactly trying to conceal their true intentions anymore. This select group of people that are gathering in uh, Davos this week to save the planet. That's their objective, to save the earth. You're listening to Stephen Flurry, and this is the Trumpet Daily. We certainly appreciate you joining our growing audience. Hopefully you enjoyed our new countdown leading up to the start of the show. You can get to our uh, live stream every weekday morning at 11 a.m. here in the central time zone of the United States at our website, thetrumpet.com. Just go to thetrumpet.com forward slash live, and it takes you right to... This show, you can also uh, watch it on demand, of course, or have it downloaded to your device. Whatever you choose, there are plenty of ways to watch and or listen to The Trumpet Daily. So this yearly forum, the WEF, the World Economic Forum, it's basically this this globalist, anti-American platform that gives people like some of the ones you just heard there, it gives them a voice. It gives them an audience. And as I say, you can go to the WEF uh, website and see, and see many of the speeches yourself. As I say, they're not trying to hide it. They're not trying to mask their true intentions. 
They, they are all for wide open borders. They don't think there should be borders anywhere, basically. So let the United States, just let the United States implode from within. And then their, their communist utopian fantasy will finally come true, they think. What an impact it would have if a billion people stopped eating meat, stopped eating beef, as one of them said there. It's not exactly, you know, I was thinking this morning about the founding fathers of the United States. Do you, do you think the spirit of the founders, the spirit, do you think the spirit of 1776 is alive and well in Davos? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, the ones that show up there, as I say, most of them, they have an abiding hatred for American or certainly for American nationalism or America first, the message that Donald Trump took to, the, to that conference in 2018. I'll play a clip for that from that uh, a little bit later. What a difference, though. What a contrast, even when you compare what Donald Trump said there a few years ago with what so many of these world leaders are saying today. And then they have, they, they have Brian Stelter come in, fresh off of his firing at CNN, to talk with the, uh, the, the, the owner of the New York Times, Salzberger, and they're there talking about the greatest threat facing the world, disinformation, these super spreaders of disinformation, as I was saying yesterday on the show. And you know, in a lot of ways, it is, it is one of the greatest threats facing the world, facing the United States. What a powerful weapon, disinformation, has been. Look at all the Twitter file revelations and the media, the talking heads, they don't even discuss it. We're on to 16 revelations now from, from Twitter. Elon Musk just revealing some of the, you know, the in-house back and forth between the Twitter executives and the DOJ or whoever it might be. And these are explosive revelations and yet Stelter and his friends and the media, they won't discuss it. They won't discuss the truth in this case. They cover that up because it doesn't square with their agenda, their narrative. This is from the New York Post, by the way. A former top intelligence official who signed on to a letter attacking the Post bombshell 2020 reporting on Hunter Biden's laptop as Russian disinformation has now, had, has now admitted he knew a significant portion of the recovered files had to be real but doesn't regret dismissing the expose. His name's Douglas Wise. He now admits the Post, of course, tried to get him to talk previous to this, but he won't speak. He, he gave this interview to The Australian, a publication in Australia, and, and, and basically said, yeah, you know, we, those 51 of us, you know, the 51 intel agents, we signed, we signed this document it's like an affidavit basically saying that this has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. In other words, it's not Hunter's laptop. It's from Russia. Now he comes along and says, yeah, well, we knew it was, it was Hunter's material. That's how the Russians would have used it as disinformation, I guess. He doesn't have any, no regrets. He helped to spread disinformation just two years ago. And, he, and this is an intel agent. This is one of the higher-ups. This is one of the elites, like in Davos. 
Oh, they flood into Davos on their private jets. Even Chris Ray is there. What is that all about? You would think he'd be keeping a low profile, but it shows you just how much they love rubbing shoulders with the anti-American elites, these radical leftists. They're having their cocktail, cocktail parties at night. <clears throat> you heard about the story I mentioned yesterday from the Daily Mail, all the prostitutes flooding into Davos as well. It's a big party for the ruling class. It's a big party for just a select group of human beings. To, to quote what John Kerry said, it's all about, it's all about power, really, and control. They, they, want, they really and truly want to control what you eat, what you can't eat. Like I said, it's not the spirit of 17, 1776 that's motivating this, not, not, not by a long shot. We're seeing our freedoms erode away, and these ruling class elites, they love it. They love it. But going back to that exchange between Stelter and the New York Times guy, the, the powerful weapon that is disinformation Listen to this big reveal. This is from CNN, I think just earlier today, clip eight. Despite his denials, a CNN review of the laptop data, as well as other public material, shows that Joe Biden did interact with some of his son's associates while serving as vice president, though it's unclear exactly what was discussed. One example, the Republican site, Miguel Aleman Magnani, a Mexican businessman and son of the former president who Hunter was trying to woo. In 2014, Aleman Magnani and his dad were photographed at the White House with then-Vice President Biden. In a later email, Hunter Biden reminds Alemani Magnani of the favors he's done for him. We have been talking about business deals and partnerships for seven years. I have brought every single person you have ever asked me to bring to the effing White House and the vice president's house and the inauguration. Hunter Biden bluntly acknowledged the power of the Biden name in a memoir, writing that the Ukrainian energy company Burisma, which put him on its board, considered my last name gold. I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. Everything in that report right there from earlier today, we knew years ago, we knew that we knew Joe Biden was interacting with Hunter's business associates. Never mind what he said. He said it even during the debate. I don't, uh, I don't have any, I don't know anything about my son's business dealings. And the laptop reveals that to be a lie, a blatant lie. And CNN is just now getting around to reporting the truth. CNN is just now getting to the point where it says, uh, yeah, we examined the laptop. You did? Because two years ago, you covered it up. Yes, indeed. Disinformation. That's a powerful, powerful weapon. Salzberger's right. It is one of the greatest threats facing us. It's just that he thinks it comes from those bad, dirty, conservative Republicans. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. I mean, it's every, they did everything except specifically say Trump is the he's the greatest purveyor of lies that there is. Of course, they say that that kind of thing all the time. And then they they cover up the truth. They spread lies and they cover up the truth. Regarding those classified documents, how much of that story is in fact the cover up? Not so much the exposing of those four batches of, of top secret files. 
you know, at the University of Pennsylvania, in the garage, in the room adjacent to the garage, in the Wilmington home. And all of it is, again, carefully controlled by Joe Obama's attorneys, the White House attorneys, and, of course, the, the talking heads in the media. Now, Obama is most likely finished with Joe Biden, the puppet, as we've been saying. But even there, even there, throwing him under the bus for this, for this, what is not being told, President Trump was in, interviewed, I forget what uh, the, the name of the journalist or the organization was, but just I'll give you a bit of this from Just the News. It says, when asked about the controversy surrounding classified documents found at Joe Biden's home and office, Trump said he felt there was a double standard in the Department of Justice, deciding to raid the Mar-a-Lago compound while allowing Biden lawyers to search for his files, even after four discoveries. It says here, obviously, it's a cover-up, Trump told Brody. It's a very sad situation. Trump also criticized, notice this, he's the only one, he's about the only one that will do this. Well, well we do, obviously. Trump also criticized former President Barack Obama and his potential involvement in the document saga. It says it brings Obama into the picture, as you can imagine, because the documents are really Obama documents. He's right. He's right about this. This happened during Obama's presidency. How come he allowed that to happen, says Trump? How come he allowed these interactions with Hunter's business dealings, his business associates, and then he was lying about it. But this, as CNN just said there, this was going on when Joe Biden was vice president. That means it's under Obama's watch. It's during Obama's presidency. And uh, Donald Trump just says it. Hey, you guys are giving Obama a pass. He's, in, he's right in the middle of, the, of all of this. It's going on during his presidency. Joe Biden leaves, by the way. I played that clip for you yesterday or the day before of, of Tucker revealing the hypocrisy behind the tax returns and how that the tax returns show that Donald Trump lost a good portion of his wealth when he was serving in office. Quite unlike Joe Biden, he's raked in millions and millions and millions. It's interesting when you do look at Biden's tax returns. Again, it's been scrubbed from the Biden website. But if you look at his tax returns in 2016, his last year as vice president, his gross income was $315,000. The next year, it was $11 million. In 2017, he made $11 million as he started raking in the funds, no doubt, from all of the pay-for-play favors that he gave to world leaders, that he gave to governments like the CCP in China. It's all there on the laptop. And yet, here's one of the 51 intel officers basically saying, uh, yeah, don't regret anything. Uh, I signed on board. Uh, the, the, yeah, we said it was Russian disinformation, but even as I was signing it, I knew it was uh, most likely Hunter's material. They lie. They lie. They spread disinformation. It deceives people. And it rigs elections. It rigs elections. Margot Cleveland over at, uh, uh, boy, I think that's a Federalist that she writes for. She wrote this article listing off some points as to why the media won't cover the Twitter files. As I say, 16 batches of revelations. And, and even, even then, 
It's not as hard-hitting as it should be, as we've noted over and again. But still, for the media to just ignore it? Why? Why won't they cover it? Well, she elaborates on that in her piece. It says, notwithstanding these explosive revelations, backed up by the internal communications of high-level Twitter executives, the corporate media have ignored the scandals. Why? Why have they ignored the scandals? She says there's five reasons. Number one, giving credence to Trump's 2020 election claims would be unforgivable. If you cover the Twitter files, then you also have to admit that the election was rigged in so many different ways, as Donald Trump has said. But they can't, they can't admit to that because Trump's the liar-in-chief, right? He's the one spreading disinformation. So say the super spreaders of disinformation that says here in the article, or as Donald Trump put it on Truth Social after the Twitter files broke, the biggest thing to come out of the, twi the Twitter targeting hoax is that the presidential election was rigged, and that's, a, that's as big as it can get. That's the biggest reveal in all of this, these Twitter files. Margot Cleveland says, for the press to honestly cover the Twitter files then they would have to, would th that would require it to give credence to Trump's rigged claims, something it just cannot stomach. It says, instead, the corrupt media have responded to the Twitter files with silence or spin. That's what you get from these super spreaders of disinformation. You get silence or you get spin. You don't get the truth. That's covered up. Her second point is being the press means you never have, means you never have to say you're sorry. You never, you're never going to go back and You're just like one of these 51 intel officers. I mean, he's not in the media, but he might as well be. They're, they're one and the same in so many ways. The Twitter files have revealed that. They don't come back and apologize. They don't come back and say, you know what? We got it wrong. You know what? We, we actually contributed to a rigged election. They can't admit that because they're filled with pride and vanity. The third point she lists, condemning the feds would shut down sources and hurt their heroes. See, they're not trying to speak truth to power anymore, like it might have been decades ago. They've got sources and methods, <laughs> to quote what Chris Ray often says. They've got sources and methods, and they've got to keep those relationships cultivated, you know, rub shoulders with one another. The media, the deep state, they're all in on it. They love, that's why they love them, some Davos. Let's fly to Davos, says Chris Ray. He's, he's the head of the FBI. Is he over there looking for January 6th protesters? Probably, he probably is. Chris Ray at the World Economic Forum? The fourth reason she gives, the Russian boogeyman must be preserved at all costs. She says here, ignoring the Twitter files also helps the media preserve their Russia, Russia, Russia narrative. Corrupt media need to maintain Russia as the bad guy for future elections, however, and to counter future scandals affecting Democrats. You see, it's, it's an attack. It's an attack from Russia. They used that in 2016, and they've used it over and over again. It must be preserved, that narrative says here the Twitter files would, accurate reporting on the Twitter files would lessen the effects of any later resort to a, 
a Russia, Russia, Russia narrative, and the press can't have that. They just can't have it. And then the fifth point she gives, this is why they won't cover the Twitter files. She says, number five, reporters prefer their role as propagandists to journalists. They rather like being a propagandist. <laughs> Brian Stelter loves controlling the narrative as best he can. Now, he's being exposed like so many of the others. But the, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, they'd rather be propagandists than, than reporters of the truth. It says here, while there are many practical reasons the press refuses to report on the Twitter files, as a matter of principle, it comes down to one, the legacy media have none. The so-called journalists working at outlets that were once the standard by which all journalists were judged today value politics more than they do their professional obligations. Informing the public and providing a check on the rich, the powerful, and the politicians are no longer the end goals of corrupt reporters. Rather, they seek to use their power to advance their own personal beliefs and agendas. She says, in short, the reporters refusing to cover the Twitter files prefer, prefer their role as propagandists to journalists. They are the chief purveyors of disinformation. And what a powerful, powerful weapon that is. Weapons of, I forget the name of the book, but it was, I think, called Weapons of Mass Distortion. It was about all the media lies. It was several years ago. I think it might have been put out by a media research center. In any event, it's a pretty accurate way to, to phrase it. Just tremendous weapons, powerful weapons of mass distortion and, and, and disinformation. We uh, put together an article in the May-June 2017 Trumpet, uh, the world's most powerful weapon. And my father in that piece talks about how that this weapon is more destructive than the, the biggest bombs that have been detonated. The world's most powerful weapon, the subject is on evolution, but it, it still makes a, a powerful point about how ideas and thoughts are so powerful if you're out there spreading lies, if you're out there spreading disinformation. I mean, look at, look at how, just to go back to 2008, look at how the media that swooned over Barack Obama, how they covered his... They covered for his fundamental transformation of the United States, which, which in fact is to destroy America. And yet they turned that into something that was good and right. And Obama was like a saint, an angel, an angel of light. That radical transformation, it continues. You see the spirit of it in Davos this week. You see it any time these radical Democrats open their mouths. Listen to this exchange last night between Tucker Carlson and uh, Candace Owens, clip two. We know that their every effort is aimed at censoring speech, right? The Democrats know that in order for them to be omnipotent, they need to be able to control words because if they can control words, they can control, control thoughts. And ultimately what they're after is brainwash. And by the way, yeah. they've been really good at brainwash. If you, speaking of what you just spoke about, you have people that are graduating. I just talked about this today. Graduating Harvard who actually believe that men can be women and women can be men and all we have to do is change our minds. So they know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly what they're after. And Ultimately, what they want is full power and control over every single person and their households. And they'll use law enforcement to do it. And the police and the FBI and the courts. 
I, I wonder if we've laughed too much at the absurdity of all of this and not internalized how deadly serious they are about using power to crush their political opponents. Oh, I have been laughing, but at the same time, pointing people to the very real truth and said that what they truly want is a totalitarian society. Uh, they are following the playbook, you know, everything that they are after. They are attacking religion. They are attacking the First Amendment. They continually want to remove guns from your households. I mean, what does that spell out to you? Where have we seen this before in every communist society that exists, that has existed and does exist today? Because that is what needs to happen. They need to remove individual power. And what's been very interesting is seeing how they're breaking down people's mentality, right? We are becoming a fundamentally weak country. That's Candace Owens last night with Tucker talking about the aim of these communist insurrectionists. We have that chapter, remember, and he was right. The communist infiltration of the United States, how it was prophesied. Herbert Armstrong was on this back in the 1940s and 50s. Call our operators and request. He was right because he was. It's one 930 and along, along with that, get America under attack if you don't have it uh, yet. I know that most of you do. A quote from AUA, it says, Hitler believed that if you tell a big lie and repeat it often enough, people will believe it. He wrote in Mein Kampf, in the big lie, there is always a certain force of credibility because the broad masses of a nation are always more easily corrupted in the deeper strata of their emotional nature than consciously or voluntarily. And thus, in the, in the primitive simplicity of their minds, they more readily fall victims to the big lie than the small lie, since they themselves often tell small lies in little matters but would be ashamed to resort to large-scale falsehoods. That's quoting Hitler, who understood a thing or two about big, blatant, audacious lies. It says here, that may sound strange, but Hitler, this is my father now, but Hitler used it with frightening effect, effectiveness. He claimed that the German army did not lose World War I on the battlefield, but instead had been stabbed in the back by the Jews. He goes on and talks about the Versailles Treaty and some of the other things that Hitler, and Hitler, you know, he won the popular support of uh, the German people. They, they, believe, they swallowed these lies. It says here, we have not learned from this history as we should. Could something similar happen today? My father says, could someone stir up a political revolution simply by repeating a blatant lie over and over and over until enough people believe it? Could it happen in America? It says, well, it absolutely has already happened to a shocking degree. It's already happened to a shocking degree. Again, America under attack. The first version of this came out in 2013. And now, as I said on yester yesterday's show, you're seeing podcasts, uh, articles, uh, panel discussions, uh, carrying a, a similar title as this, America Under Attack. A lot of people see it. Tucker even pointed out in his show last night that, you know, some of the things that are happening now, there's no way it could have happened even just five years ago. Pretty dramatic and, and fast-moving changes. Again, when you just look at the contrast, speaking of about four or five years ago, listen to Donald Trump from his Davos speech. This is 2018, so this is about five years ago. And here he was representing America and American interests. This is clip six. I'm here today to represent the interests of the American people 
the world is witnessing the resurgence of a strong and prosperous America. I'm here to deliver a simple message. There has never been a better time to hire, to build, to invest, and to grow in the United States. Regulation is stealth taxation. The U.S., like many other countries, unelected bureaucrats, and we have, believe me, we have them all over the place, and they've imposed crushing and anti-business and anti-worker regulations on our citizens with no vote, no legislative debate, and no real accountability. In America, those days are over. As president of the United States, I will always protect the interests of our country, our companies, and our workers. We are lifting self-imposed restrictions on energy production to provide affordable power to our citizens and businesses and to promote energy security for our friends all around the world. No country should be held hostage to a single provider of energy. America is roaring back, and now is the time to invest in the future of America. There's your, your spirit of 1776 right there. Freedom, individual freedom, individual rights. Yeah, lift regulations, get rid of the bureaucrats. Let Americans do their thing. Let the, let the capitalist system work the way that it's supposed to. The, to to anti-American globalists, that they hate that message right there. And that's why they will do anything to destroy all things Trump, to even, even signing on with 50 other intel agents, and you know it's a lie. You know it's a lie. We've got to destroy. It's not enough to beat Donald Trump. He must be destroyed. And so how many times, how many times have we heard the narrative over and over again? Trump's finished. Trump is finally gone. Trump is finally destroyed. Listen to this from MSNBC earlier this week, clip four. We know everything yeah. we need to know about Donald Trump and his political strengths and weaknesses. We know, I'm not even talking about the, the, the personality, the threats to democracy, or the, the, the pathological lying. I'm just saying we now know what Trump, where Trump can perform and where he can't perform, what he can and can't do, what his ceiling and floor are as a presidential candidate. There are voters he'll never get. There are places he'll never be competitive. And there's so many of them now that there's no world in which Donald Trump could, I, no imaginable world in which Donald Trump could ever win a popular majority in America. America, uh, in the American electorate. And the window, the narrow thread, the narrow needle that he needs to thread in the Electoral College has gotten narrower and narrower. He's getting close to, not unelectable yet, but he's, he's the, 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 the deficits he carries into that race are so huge and so well known and specified that if, if the Republican Party were a rational body with a single mind, there's no, there's no world in which he would be the nominee. And the thing of it is, a lot of Republicans uh, agree with this left-wing communist, this Marxist. No, there's no, if Republicans were smart, they know they, there's no world in which he would be the nominee. And along come the Republicans to echo those same sentiments. Listen to Paul Ryan from last week, clip five. He's fading fast. He's a proven loser. He costs us the House in 18. He costs us the White House in 20. He costs us the Senate again and again. 
And I think we all know that, and I think we're moving past Trump. I really think that's the case. I, do, I can't imagine him getting the nomination, frankly. Isn't it wonderful when you, you hear a proven loser like Paul Ryan talk about Donald Trump as if he's a proven loser? Trump comes along in 2016, and people in the remote outskirts of places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan show up to vote after probably years and years of just not voting at all, not participating at all. He wins the Rust Belt. The cheating machines weren't quite in motion in those swing states as yet. He wins in 2016. He won again in 2020. Take away the the stealing, the, the rigging. He wins again. They get a majority just a couple of months ago in the House and would have won control of the Senate as well when you take away the cheating in Arizona and elsewhere. And then, as I reported during the the battle for Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy said as much that it was Donald Trump who got them all over the hump. I mean, you you could really argue that Trump is running the House of Representatives right now. But here come these people. You see, it's wishful thinking. They just want him to, glow, to, to, to go away. They don't want the spirit of 1776. They want control. They want a uniparty. They want their pockets lined by the lobbyists and by the CCP. They want the status quo. They want the cocktail parties. They want everything that's been there for, for many, many years now. They, they would rather... They would rather live under the reign of Barack Hussein Obama than to have someone like Donald Trump come along and actually give power to the people. More power to the people. It's not enough. It's not enough to quote that that infamous tweet from David Pluff years ago. It's not enough to just beat Donald Trump. He must be destroyed. Well, stepping back from all of this, again, looking at the bigger picture, of these curses of what's happened even in the United States over the last few years alone. There was a a book review in uh, Law and Liberty. Um, It's a book about Abraham Lincoln. And uh, notice this. This is just taken from the review. It says, The day of Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address presented an ominous metaphor to a a republic ravaged by civil war A cold, miserable rain greeted the exhausted assemblage who gathered before the U.S. Capitol to hear their chief implore renewed dedication to a a remorseless struggle. It says, but as the president rose, the skies cleared. You may have heard this before, this story. The skies cleared and the sun shone. It was as if God himself pined to hear his humble servants appeal to heaven. And, And if you know... If you know anything about the second inaugural, I mean, this, was a, this is basically a religious text. This is a sermon that the President of the United States gave that, that day in, in 1865. I think he references God 14 times, if my memory serves me, in just one speech. Refers to the Bible says, yet rather than ushering in the dawn of a, a glorious future, Lincoln delivered a sermon on the divine judgments of history. It says, on that day in March 1865, Lincoln asked his fellow citizens to consider why God wrung American blood to effect his holy will in accounting for the nation's collective sin of slavery. How did this happen? 
Why has so much blood spilled in places like Virginia and Pennsylvania and Tennessee and Mississippi and Georgia, all over the place? Hundreds of thousands of Americans slaughtered in this great civil war. And here's Abraham Lincoln, the President of the United States, to point us to God. Why, why did this happen? It says, as a young man, Lincoln struggled with questions of divine will. He nevertheless sensed the world gripped in a supernatural struggle between virtue and malice. To what extent did God uh, mediate this eternal dispute? Lincoln did not know. But as he matured, particularly when he engaged in the national debates over slavery during the 1850s, Lincoln came to see history not as a, an arbitrary or random process. It says, when God's children ignored or cursed his holy designs, they confronted an inevitable punishment foretold in the Old Testament. What he's saying here is that Lincoln understood a thing or two about cause and effect and how that if curses set in, it's, it's for disobedience and rebelliousness. It says, finally, as Lincoln came to believe, God brought such a terrible civil war to account for the United States' failure to rid itself of human bondage. As he thus advised the Congress in 1862, emancipation offered a way, a way which, if followed, the world will forever applaud, and God must forever bless. See, if we do the right thing here, we'll be blessed. We'll be blessed by God. It says, abolition may not have arrived gradually, as Lincoln long assumed. It had come from the terrible swift sword wielded by a God who moved the nations through his appointed time. When Lincoln surrendered his life, his beloved union had survived. He departed the world, conscious of Providence's guiding hand, for he had been a tool of God during his moment on earth. God used him. You might remember that other quote. It's in the U.S. and Britain in prophecy. I don't have that on the, the desk here. Yes, I think I do. No, I don't. In any event, that's Mr. Armstrong's classic text on Bible prophecy where he quotes Lincoln at length, saying that we've forsaken God, basically. All of these blessings that God's poured down upon us here in America, all of these blessings, we didn't, it didn't come by our own uh, strength or ingenuity or toil, as, as Lincoln said. These are blessings from God, but we've forgotten God. If you haven't uh, gotten a copy of the United States and Britain in Prophecy, read, study that along with America Under Attack. You can see the 800 number there if you're in the U.S., Canada, or the Caribbean. It's 1-866-930-3024. Sounds like an interesting book, uh, this article about, uh, I guess it's by... John Meacham, so he's a left-winger, but at least, at least with the sections that are reviewed in, uh, in this article at Law and Liberty, it sounds like there's some good material. You're listening to Stephen Flurry, and this is the Trumpet Daily. If you'd like to email the show, you can send us a message, tdatthetrumpet.com. We'll be right back. The Trumpet Daily. Freedom is one of the most sought-after ideals in human history. Man's search for freedom has taken him into the fiercest of protests, struggles, revolutions, civil wars, and even world wars. Today, 
In the midst of free societies, many continue to fight for what they perceive as ever greater freedoms. And yet, many of these same people are actively fighting against law. Few people understand that this war against law actually undermines true freedom. To learn more, request Gerald Flurry's booklet, No Freedom Without Law. In this free booklet, you will see what the Bible says about the latter-day spirit of rebellion and lawlessness that is now so common in our nations today. Also request America Under Attack. In this booklet, you will learn more about the spirit behind this attack on law. You'll see where this is leading. Both booklets are offered freely at no cost or obligation to you. Request No Freedom Without Law and America Under Attack. Email your request to td at kpcg.fm or visit thetrumpet.com. The Trumpet Daily. We've referred you so often to the prophecy in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, where it speaks of America's sickness, or really the sickness of the Israelite nations in these last days. It's described as being from head to toe, all the way through. I mean, the top tier of society. There's a sickness that has set in there as well. In America Under Attack, this is from, again, from the book, it says America's power structures are terminally ill, Top to bottom, it's like I covered with you on Monday. You, you, it's described there in Romans 3. Read the middle of that chapter. Read Isaiah 1. Read, read Jeremiah 17. Read Matthew 9, where Jesus said, we're, we're sick and infirm. We need, we need healing. It says here, the government agents are sick. The legislators are sick. The judges are sick. The media moguls are sick. The officials counting our votes are sick. They're all sick. It says Satan certainly has a lot of help, but 2 Kings 14 shows that there is no helper for Israel. There's no helper. It seems everyone's compromised. We've talked before about uh, rhinos, Republicans in name only. We've talked before about Christians in name only. Those that would rather be friends with the devil befriend Barack Obama and all of his globalist friends in Davos. I mean, if you can get in good with them, that's really the, the, the main objective here. You, as you, look, you can live high on the hog. I mean, you've got millions and millions. You've got private aircrafts. You've got all these cocktail parties. Well, there's even the prostitutes coming into town. You can just celebrate Sodom and Gomorrah and, and also acquire more power. I mean, more, more control over the, the little peons, you know, the sheeple. It's so easy, isn't it, to just go after the bad orange man, to target him and the spirit of 1776 and the spirit of individual rights and freedoms, the, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. It's so easy to attack those things and to cozy up to the devil's system. That's not to say that the, the American system is perfect by any means, the way that the founders drew it up. But I just read to you what Abraham Lincoln, I mean, that's just in the 1850s and 60s, the 16th president acknowledging that, that if we want to be blessed, we better obey God. 
No wonder Lincoln wasn't a, a regular congregant in one of the churches, because he knew, he knew that the, ch the churches, even of his day, so many of them, they weren't preaching the truth of the Bible. So Lincoln just read the Bible himself, and he knew the Bible. As I say, read the second inaugural. It reads like a sermon. Where are the leaders like that today? That's a good question. You don't see them. My father writes, there's no helper there except God. God sees everything that is happening, and these criminals are going to run up against something they have never faced before. God is going to save Israel. Otherwise, Barack Obama would blot out even the name of Israel. See, only God could save us. God is the one who's going to save us. 2 Kings 14 brings that out. And we, as God's children, what do we do? Well, we believe. We believe. We broadcast the truth. We point you to 2 Kings and Isaiah 1 and other passages. We give you God's perspective. And there's a lesson, a valuable lesson at that, that we learned through the court case over Mystery of the Ages. We fought for six years to finally obtain the rights to be able to print and distribute this book. It's like a magnificent summary of, of Mr. Armstrong's entire ministry. And we won the rights to this in 2003. We just, I told you a little bit about that history on Monday's show, the anniversary of Herbert Armstrong's death. But think, think of the twists and turns. If you've read Raising the Ruins, you're aware of these. That initially in that lower court with Judge Letts, I mean, he ruled in our favor and we were ecstatic. And then it moved up to the Ninth Circuit there in Pasadena, California. And two of the three judges, judges ruled against us. And then the petition made it up to the Supreme Court. They decided not to hear our petition. And so, I mean, it, it, looked, it was exciting at the start. It looked very bleak toward the end. Some twists and turns along the way. Servants of the devil, really. They were destroying everything about the church that God used Herbert Armstrong to establish, including his, his final work, Mystery of the Ages. Jody Koch Jr. said, yeah, well, I've got a Christian duty to keep this out of print. So we fought to keep it in print, and we won in the end because they capitulated. They gave in. They surrendered. That story's in Raising the Ruins. But just put yourself in that, that history. How, how, okay, fight, be courageous, stand up for the truth, but there's also the timing of it all. How long are you willing to fight for God? Is there a time limit on it? Do you say or think, I'll go, I'll be a real Christian, I'll fight for the truth, I want to be on God's side, but I don't want it to go more than three, four years. That's where, that's how I'm limiting it. Or, are you one that says, no matter what happens, no matter how long this takes, I'm going to be a defender, a fighter of the truth, all the way through to the end? Because, you know, in 1997 on through to 2003, that's a six-year bracket. Six years of a grueling struggle. We had to cancel SEP for two summers. We had to go off TV stations with our, our, our program just so that we could concentrate on the fight for Mystery of the Ages. And it was a long fight. And we prevailed in the end. I was telling the students in the epistles just this morning, 
you know, you don't often, you don't often see the, the length of time that, that passes when a servant of God is faithfully putting his or her trust in God, waiting on God, patiently. Read Romans 4 about Abraham, our father, the father of the faithful. He was just told, he was just told uh, hey, you need to leave Babylon, get out and go where I'll tell you to go. And Abraham departed, and, and he went. He was promised a son. They couldn't have children. And they had to wait for years, and ye- for decades, in fact. Abraham was 100 years old, and Sarah was 90. And they had a son of promise because God said that they would. God tested their faith. God tested their endurance. God, God took them right up to the point where it looked like there is no possible way that this could work out God's way, the way God said it would. And then it did. Notice Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 and verse 32, it says, But call to remembrance the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Paul tells these brethren in Judea, Look, remember the former days. When you came in, you endured a great fight of afflictions. You would go through anything for God. You would do anything to defend God's apostle, to fight for the truth. Verse 33 says, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. That's in the Revised Standard Version. He's just telling the brethren, look, you've really put up with a lot early on. In the early days, look at this great fight of afflictions that you went through. Verse 34 says, for you had compassion on me of me and my bonds when Paul was in prison. They were, they were very supportive, very encouraging to Paul, and took joyfully the spoiling of your, your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. See, you were, you were willing to endure, to fight on, because you knew that your reward would be in heaven, that God would bless you for this position, this stance. He says in verse 35, Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. Don't lose this positive, optimistic, mental approach to your Christian living. Don't lose that that Christ-like confidence in, in the truth of God, in the promises of God. Don't cast that away. Don't lose that. Verse 36, it says, For you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. That word patience there, it means persevering endurance. Paul says you have need of persevering endurance. Look, you fought through afflictions at the start. You comforted me in my bonds. But you've got to make sure that you stay the course, that you have in preserving endurance, persevering, I should say, endurance, There's a subhead in my father's uh, booklet on Hebrews, the Hebrews booklet. The subhead is patient urgency. Patient urgency. He writes, without God, we are hopeless, but with God, we can and must be extremely confident. Real confidence comes from trusting God. His people are not negative, complaining, or depressed. Not at all. We're positively hopeful. 
We have faith. We trust in God. Romans 4, in speaking of that, that faith, says that, uh, that Abraham was, was persuaded. I mean, he was, his faith did not stagger. It did not waver. That's the example we want to follow. He is the father of the faithful, after all. My father in the booklet, the Hebrews booklet, it says, No matter how long we must wait to receive God's promises or to witness the return of Christ, our confidence should never fade. Paul implored us to persevere, never ever giving up. See, always persevere in faith. Never give up. Never give up. Don't end up being a Christian in name only. We've talked in recent programs about the importance of producing, producing fruit. Verse 37 here in Hebrews 10, it says, For yet a little while, and he that that shall come will come and will not tarry. I mean, once Christ gets here, it's not like God's plan is in slow motion or it's slowing down at all. Once he comes, and he's coming, it's promised. Some could get discouraged and say, well, Jesus isn't back yet, so what's the point? I'm getting old. It's harder to stay the course. I don't have as much energy as I once did. Verse 38, it says, now the just shall live by faith, but, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. The just live by faith. They walk by faith. They don't hesitate and draw back. They go forward. It says in verse 39, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So you have faith in God. Have that, that patient urgency. Be willing to persevere, to persevere, to, to, to fight for the, the truth, to, to defend God's truth, and to never, ever, ever let your faith, actually Christ's faith in you, waver or stagger, like it says there in Romans 4. Perhaps we can hit some highlights from that chapter at a later time. As of now, we're out of time. You're listening to Stephen Flurry, and this is the Trumpet Daily. Don't forget the 800 number, 1-866-930-3024. We thank you for joining us on today's show, and we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>